He caught me first hour. He stopped and, what? Oh, I'm supposed to get up there. <laughs> well, good morning. I'm Tim Carnes. I'm pastor of adult ministries here at Calvary, and I've been uh, given the privilege to bring the Word of God to you this morning. And to start that, I just wanted us to think a minute on uh, hero worship. It's a big part of our culture. Uh, many people have an insatiable desire to other, idolize others, don't they? Uh, from athletes to actors to musicians to war heroes, we stand ready to give them our accolades and our attention and, and even our devotion. And the lengths to which some people will go just to even see or, or get an autograph from their, their heroes is pretty amazing. And I, I've got to admit, I'm not immune to this myself. I still remember during my freshman year at UCLA, uh, Clint Eastwood was going to come on campus and he was going to give a private screening to less than 100 people of a film that had just come out. And so I thought, this is a chance of a lifetime to meet Dirty Harry in person. I mean, come on. <laughs> That's before I was a Christian. And so basically they were offering 50 tickets for any who could, could come and take them. So I took uh, my radio and my ice chest and a couple roommates and we went down to the ticket office on Westwood Boulevard and spent the night on the pavement just so we could get a ticket to see Clint Eastwood. Well, as it turned out, I ended up sitting in the back of the room. I never even got a chance to meet the guy, so I got a sore back for nothing. But, uh, you know, it's just another example of, of the degree to which people will go just to, to see those who they idolize. And I'm amazed. When, think about those movie clips we see of the, the Beatles or, or Elvis and the crowds that work themselves up into a frenzy to an extent that some of them would even faint. Others, they'll spend inordinate amounts of money just to have an autographed picture of somebody. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we all would admit that there are those in our lives that we might hold up a little bit as heroes. Somebody that we would just about be thrilled to meet, that we would uh, be ready to, to give them our praise, that would stir our emotions if we had that opportunity to see them. And the question I want us to consider today is, does your desire to know and meet God elicit the same kind of response? How excited do you get when you think about Him? Would you spend the night without a sleeping bag and just an ice chest just to have an opportunity to get a glimpse of him? This morning, we're going to focus our attention on the only one that really truly deserves that kind of attention, our great God and Savior. And my goal for our time this morning together here is that you would leave here more enamored, more devoted to, and more in love with our great God than when you came. It's his autograph that we should be willing to give up anything to get. It is meeting Him which should drive us into a, a frenzy of anticipation. And this kind of response to God comes from learning more about Him through His Word. And so I want you to turn to Psalm 113, where we will get a glimpse into the character of our amazing God and will prompt you to praise your great and your humble God. Now Psalm 113 is the first of a group of psalms known as the Hallel Psalms. These were psalms that 113 to 118, and they were recited or sung by tradition uh, during the Passover. Psalms 113 and 114 would be sung or recited uh, before the Passover meal, and the remainder of the psalms would be sung afterwards. We see that a reference to this in Matthew 26:30, which mentions after singing a hymn, that's when Jesus went uh, to Gethsemane. And those hymns were these psalms that they were singing. We don't know the author or the date or even the circumstances of these Hallel Psalms, but 
what we do see is they carry a theme of praise, praise to God, especially Psalm 113 of all the Hallel Psalms rings out in praise to the Lord. Beginning in verse one, let's read this Psalm together. Praise the Lord. Praise O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. So what do you notice about the focus of this psalm? Do you see any kind of emphasis here? I mean, obviously, it's in praise to God. He repeats it over and over and over. And in fact, he uses a poetic device at the beginning of the end of the psalms. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. The call to praise or bless God is repeated six times within these nine verses alone. And the thrust of this psalm is simply this. Praise your great and humble God. The psalm can be divided into two stanzas. Remember, it's a poem. The first stanza is in verses 1 through 4. And its focus is a call to praise God for his greatness. The second stanza of this psalm is verses 5 through 9. And it sets our focus on calling calling praise to God for his humility. Well, let's look at the first stanza here in the first four verses of this psalm, which the author proclaims overflowing praise to God for his greatness. In fact, five of the six commands to praise or bless God are given in these first four verses. It's within this first stanza that we see several elements of praise. We see the nature of praise, we see the extent of praise, and we also see the basis of praise. Let's first examine the nature of the call to praise our God, verses 1 to 4. And as I mentioned before, the the word praise is the word hallel. That's where we get the word praise from in English. And it it simply is an expression of appreciation. It's given to to somebody to to honor them for who they are or for perhaps something that they have done. It means to speak well of, to exalt, to speak highly of, and it can be spoken or sung. One aspect of the nature of praise is, is shown here that it is focused on God and God alone. Praise is to the Lord. His worshipers are called to praise Him. And our praise is to be focused on God because simply He desires it. He wants our praises. He delights in them. In fact, that was one of the reasons He set the nation of Israel apart for Himself. It says in Isaiah 43, 21, The people whom I formed for Myself will declare My praise. Romans 1, 21 Romans 1, 18 through 21, verse 18 reveals the wrath of God revealed from heaven against those who've rejected God. And one of the primary reasons, one of the primary means in which God has been angered by people is the fact that it says in verse 21, they refuse to honor or thank him. You see, God desires our praise. It's something that he wants. And this is clearly seen each time we're given a glimpse into the throne room of God. If you remember the vision in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees uh, where God is. What's happening there? The seraphs are there hovering and they're proclaiming in a loud voice, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Just as we sang a few minutes ago. 
Also in John's vision, Revelation 4, I'd like you to turn there with me. Keep your thumb in Psalm 113. We're going to come back. But Revelation 4, we're also given another vision from John the Apostle of the throne room of God. And I want you to notice there what is happening. Revelation 4. We'll begin in verse 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. What do we see in these two scenes, Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4? The courts of God are filled with praise to Him. Praise befits our Lord. It's what He desires to be surrounded with. Going back to our first four verses in Psalm 113, we see that the nature of praise not only focuses on God who desires it, but it is to be passionate. Our praise is to be passionate. The psalmist doesn't just say here, praise the Lord, and then move on to the next point. He repeats it over and over and over. His passion is gushing out. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is to be praised. This is impassioned poetry. It's calling for our will, our intellect, and our emotions to cry out to praise for God. Do you think those beings that were around the throne that we saw in Isaiah and Revelation were simply droning out in monotone, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory? No, no, not at all. But it seems at times that we do that. When we have opportunity to proclaim God's praise or to sing His praise, sometimes (laughs) we might not give it in a manner that is honoring to the Lord. As we give Him praise verbally, we're to speak with conviction and with awe. This is God that you're declaring praise to and praise about. Follow the psalmist's example here and praise God with a genuine emotion which glories in His greatness and His goodness. I mean, we invest passion in many other areas in our life, don't we? Right when they late score, late in the game, guys, I've seen a lot of you, man, you get excited. When our kids do something that uh, amazes or encourages us, uh, we're just at a, a baseball game, our son Daniel's on uh, one of the Calvary teams, and uh, it was uh, one of those dream opportunities. It was bases loaded, bottom of the last inning, two outs, Daniel was at the plate, down in the count, and he cracks one right into the left field gap. Bases start clearing. And what do you think his mother and I were doing as we were sitting there? (laughs) Say, darling, that was quite an impressive strike of the ball, was it not? Well done, son. No, we blew out of those bleachers, man. We were excited. You could hear his mom four blocks away. I mean, our praise to God should be filled with such excitement, should it not? I mean, I've seen normally reserved and stoic men cry like babies when their team won the championship. And if we can get excited about such things, could we not get excited in our praise to the Lord? Does not knowing Him 
stir the soul to joy in, and at times give exuberant praise to him. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not talking about out of control and mindless emotion here. No, it is, it is God-focused. It is genuine. It is heartfelt. It is based on the truth that we know about him. And so we see here in this psalm, the nature of praise is passionate. It is God-focused. It is involved. Verses 2 to 3 then show us that the extent of this praise is to be continuous. It's to be eternal. And it's to be in all places. Our lives should be characterized by continuous praise. And we see that in the, the types of verbs that are used here for blessed and for praised. In the original Hebrew, they carry the idea of a, a continuousness, of, a, of an ongoing sense. We're called not just to praise Him at certain moments, but to be characterized by it. Notice, too, the extent of our praise. It's to be for all time. The psalmist says, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise is rightly due Him all of our living days. For your praise to be continuous, this means it is to be given in good times and in bad. It is to be given in the highs of life and the lows, in happiness or in sadness. You remember Job's response, right? When everything was taken from him, what did he say? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Boy, that's a man characterized by praise. Not only is God worthy of continuous praise each and every day through eternity, but it is also He is worthy of that praise in all places. And we see that in verse 3, the term from its setting, from the setting of the sun to or the rising of the sun, excuse me, to its setting. Now it may seem to be talking about morning and evening, but actually this was an ancient Near Eastern way of talking about east and west, from the place where the sun rises to the place where it sets. The name of the Lord is to be praised. Some translations translate this as east, from east to west. In every place on this earth, the psalmist calls us to bear forth with praise, to bring praise to God. Praise Him in your homes. Speak highly of Him in your jobs. Honor Him and exalt Him before your neighbors. When God blesses your labor at work, give Him verbal praise, audible praise, among and around especially nonbelievers. I startled several co-workers at times when I would ask the Lord to help with uh, certain experiments that we were working on or projects. And, and when God would bless, I'd say, praise God. Said, what? <laughs> but you know, that honors him. I asked him for to help and he gave it. Should I not then give him praise? In all places, we give him praise. Not just here at church. <laughs> not just in our quiet times. But in all places, from east to west, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Brothers and sisters, we have been created for God's glory, have we not? And a significant way that we can express glory to God is through praise. Praise that is passionate. Praise that is God-focused. Praise that is continuous at all times and at all places. That praise befits our Lord. It glorifies and honors Him. And some of you may be saying, well, that's, that's just not me. I'm not an outgoing type of person. That doesn't describe how I am. I praise the Lord in my actions. And that's good. I mean, verbal praise would be hypocritical if it wasn't coming from a life that's seeking to glorify and honor Him and pursuing holiness. But don't stop there. Your praise must be verbal. All through the Psalms, we're called to verbally praise our Lord 
And it must express itself in a genuine, overflowing, and grateful attitude for who God is and what He has done. And if you find this difficult, then keep listening. Because the psalmist unfolds some awesome and amazing characteristics of the God that we praise. And as you dwell on those and realize the significance and the awesomeness of who He is, that will elicit outward verbal praise. Dwell on the character of God. And in fact... That continuous and adoring praise that gushes forth in the first stanza of this psalm is founded firstly on the greatness and majesty of God. And we see that in verse 4. The psalmist proclaims, The Lord is high above all the nations, His glory above the heavens. And he's not talking here about a literal height. It's not a distance or a, or a dimension. What he's talking about is the fact that God is exalted. It's His exaltation that's in view here. His splendor is far above anything that the heavens or earth can produce. What elicits such unending and overwhelming praise for God is His greatness. Poetic parallelism is used here to focus our attention on the fact that God is over all things. And it is here that we must stop and linger a moment. We must stop and consider just how great is our God. A deeper understanding of His greatness will move us to deep, continuous, and passionate praise for God. Tozer said, without doubt, the mightiest thought that the mind can entertain is the thought of God. And there are so many ways that God has demonstrated His greatness, it would take a lifetime, really, to recount them all. And that's what we will be doing in eternity. But I haven't been given a lifetime to do that, so we're just going to focus on two right now. God's greatness is clearly evident, firstly, in His act of creation. The Bible begins with this simple statement. In the beginning, finish it for me, God created the heavens and the earth. As we consider God's majesty in creation, Stephen Charnock wisely reminds us, be careful not to diminish the greatness of God as seen in His creating work because of our familiarity with it. For example, every morning when you get up and look out, We see the sun, at least when the smog allows us to. We see the sun there in the sky. But have you ever pondered the power of the sun? Have you ever sat and thought about just the the amazing energy emanating from that single body? The The sun's energy output is over 400 trillion trillion watts of energy. To give you some perspective, the sun cranks out more energy in one second then two and a half billion of our most powerful power plants would in a year. In one second, it's equivalent to two and a half billion power plants in a year. That is staggering. That's a lot of light bulbs. And what's mind-boggling about this is that God has created over a hundred billion such bodies. As we look into space, again, don't let your familiarity with what you see there with all those stars deaden or or dilute the greatness of what you're observing knowing the energy from our sun alone can you imagine the energy from a hundred billion of them some of which are a thousand times greater than our own sun we can't even begin to, to imagine that and what's more amazing our god released this unfathomable amount of energy when he simply said let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens and boom they're there Now that's the Big Bang. I mean, consider further the size of our universe. Scientists today tell us that they estimate the universe at at close to 100 billion light years in diameter, if it truly is that dimension. 
they think. That's only the only known uh, dimension of the universe, 100 billion light years. And remember that, that light travels, that's the distance that light travels within a year, some 6 trillion miles. Multiply that number by 100 billion and you start to get a little idea of just how big this universe is. I mean, to, to grasp this, think about if we took every grain of sand on planet Earth and they, we changed it from a grain to a mile long, we still would not have enough sand to span the entire universe. I mean, it is that big. It is that vast. I mean, think about that. This is incredible. You know, our minds can't even get around these kind of numbers. And what's more amazing is God simply spoke and it came to be. Just by a word, all of this power and vastness. God is great. He is exalted above all the nations and above the heavens. Praise you, God, for your greatness. It's unbelievable. And we could spend so much more time reflecting on his creation, the vast numbers and varieties of created beings, animals, plants, people. We could focus in on the intricacies of the human body and even the amazing activity in one cell. All created by our great God. On and on it goes. But not only is His greatness seen in His creation, His greatness is seen also in the fact that He sustains His creation. All of this energy, all of this power in the universe, and even our own lives themselves could not exist were not God holding them up at this very moment. You sit there alive because God is sustaining you at this very moment. Listen to the following passages. Psalm 145, 15 and 16 says, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Acts 17, 24 and 25. It says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. But he himself gives to all life, breath, and all things. Colossians 1.17 says of Jesus, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3, again speaking of Jesus, says, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. Not only would none of us be here if God did not create us, none of us would remain here if He was not sustaining us. Every living creature... Every being, every molecule, every angel, every demon, even Satan himself could not exist apart from God. If God were to remove himself from his creation, Job 34, 14 and 15 tells us that all of our lives would not only perish, we would cease to exist. Our souls would go out of existence. God spoke in the past and the universe came into being. God speaks now. And our very existence is sustained. What awesome greatness. Great is our God. So as we sit back and just try to fathom all of these things and fathom the amazing awesomeness of God, we, we can only echo the words of Job in Job eleven seven through 9. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. (laughs) He just couldn't get his mind around it either. 
Psalm 145, 3 says, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. That is, it's something that can't be searched out. As Job said, we cannot discover the limits of God's greatness. There are none. There simply are none. Can you see why our praise is to be so passionate? Can you see why it is to be full of conviction? God is great. Hallelujah. Thus, in these first four psalms, first four verses of this psalm, you're commanded to praise God for his greatness. And it's in this second stanza, as he moves from focusing on the greatness of God to an even more staggering truth about our God. And that is his humility. That is God's humility. For it is in understanding God's greatness, we are seized with greater awe at his humility. The poet begins the second stanza, verse 5, with the rhetorical question, Who is like our God? Easy test question here. Just based on what we talked about previously regarding his greatness, there are obviously none. No one. No one. No one's even close. God himself repeats that idea in Isaiah 40 when he says, To whom will you liken God? Well, we can't. There is none like him. He transcends our ability to grasp. And the psalmist reiterates God's greatness in verse 5 when he states that God is enthroned on high. And again, this doesn't mean that he's talking about God sits isolated somewhere in heaven on a throne, right? He's omnipresent. What he's focusing on here is the fact that, that, that God is exalted. Solomon himself said, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. And he gives this statement, the psalmist does, not simply to repeat a point that he's previously made. He gives, us, gives it because he wants to present to us a staggering contrast, an amazing contrast, a marvelous truth about God. What he says is that this God who is exalted, who sits on his throne, whose glory fills the temple, whose glory fills the earth, this same God humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. Rather than distance himself from this creation that he has exalted so far over, he chooses to be part of it. He chooses to literally, here it's saying, make himself low to see. God is so far above us, so far beyond us, so far over us, that for him to even give attention to us is an incredible act of humility. And that humility is seen not only in involving himself in the affairs of mankind, but notice here the text says that even for him to consider the activities among the holy angels is a humbling act for God. To this Spurgeon said, He dwells so far on high that even to observe heavenly things, he must humble himself. He must stoop to view the skies and bow to see what angels do. Calvin adds, If in regards to angels he humbles himself, what is to be said in regards to men who groveling upon the earth are altogether filthy? In short, we must conclude it is not from our proximity to him, but from his own free choice that he condescends to make us objects of his peculiar care. I mean, there there simply is just no way to convey how much God humbles himself to consider the needs of his creation. There's no analogy that would fit. And that's all the psalmist could do is just say he's continually dwelling and exalted on high. And at the same time, he's continually stooping low to look. And there's no way we can understand that gap. This condescension to care for our needs as well is not a one-time act. Again, the verb form used here for God stooping is, is a continuous nature. He's continuously doing that. He's constantly looking down upon the earth. 
His condescension toward us doesn't stop. He's ever humbling himself to give attention to his creation. What a thought. What an amazing thought. Continue humility on the part of our God. And the psalmist illustrates that humility in verses 7 through 9 by focusing on those whom the world would see as deem as lowest in society. And he uses them as examples to illustrate how much God humbles himself and cares for the needs of his creation. The first example of his humility is seen in his care for the poor and the needy. And the poor here is referring to those who are of lowly or mean estate. The needy here refers to those who are financially destitute, who have no means of financial support. And it's interesting, too, to note the ash heap here is, can actually be translated as a dunghill. It was a place outside the ancient Near Eastern uh, towns where they would, people would take their trash, they would take their refuse, they would take their garbage, and they would take their dung. And this is where the needy, those most destitute, would hang out. It is a graphic picture of the desperate state that they were in. And it is to these that we see God lower himself. There's a great example of this in 2 Kings 7, and I'd like you to turn there. 2 Kings 7. This text is talking about a time in northern Israel's history when they were under siege by the Arameans. The Arameans had camped out ready to to siege the city of Samaria. And as a result, a great famine resulted. Inflation was running rampant. And it was so bad that even some in the city had resorted to cannibalism. God then speaks through Elisha, declaring that he would deliver the city from her enemy. Let's pick it up in 2 Kings chapter 7. We'll start in verse 1. Then Elisha said, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a measure of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Skip down to verse 3. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. If we sit here, we die also. Now therefore come, and let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they were resigned to their fate. We go on in verse 5. And they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. When they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was, and fled for their life. I love this next verse. These four guys show up. When these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank, and they carried from their silver and gold and clothes and went and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent and carried from there also and went and hid them. And it goes on from there where he goes back to the city and lets them know they become the heroes of of, of Samaria. But what's interesting here is in God's providence... I mean, you can imagine these four lepers, right? They come out in trepidation and, you know, we're going to die anyway. We'll probably die here. Let's just see. And they come on and behold, there's nobody here. 
Check it out. And they start running in tents and out of tents, grabbing all they could, food, clothes, valuables, running off and hiding them somewhere, and they're running back. I mean, can you imagine the excitement of these guys who've been living by a dunghill, and now they're here, man, we are loaded. And then they thought, yeah, let's let everybody else know too. But isn't it amazing in the Lord's providence how he allowed these four guys, these lepers, to participate and be the first to enjoy the booty of that defeat. God stooped to consider the needs of these four guys and to care for them. It is God's heart to be concerned for the desperate and the afflicted of the world. And what's so encouraging is that God desires to do this. Isaiah 57:15 says, "For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with those with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite." And he is still humbling himself today to consider our needs. We all sit in a pigsty of sin in the dunghill of iniquity do we not and yet the lord offers to raise us up with the prince prince of glory as it says in ephesians talks about god has raised up those who have sought his forgiveness those who have turned from their life of sin and asked god to to forgive them and repented and believed in him he raises them up spurgeon reflects on this how great a stoop from the height of his throne to a dunghill What a dunghill was that upon which we lay by nature. We could have never risen out of all of this by our own efforts. As another illustration of God's humility, the psalmist in Psalm 113 then draws our attention to the barren woman. He says that God makes her to dwell as a joyful mother of children. And we see many examples of this in Scripture with Hannah and Sarah and Rachel and Elizabeth. And what's interesting here is the the psalmist seems to be drawing directly upon the prayer that Hannah offered to the Lord when he gave her Samuel, 1 Samuel 2. We read in verse 8 there that she said, He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. And the psalmist directly quotes from Hannah's prayer. And I think that's what, as he's reflecting on these words that she gave, he realizes And Hannah herself was an illustration of God's kindness and humility. Hannah herself was one who was barren, who cried out to the Lord, and God blessed her with Samuel. And not only Samuel, he gave her five more children. That's why the psalmist says here, as the mother of children. As we reflect on God's great humility, notice here that he's addressing individual people the poor, the needy, the barren woman. People who are desperate, who are discouraged. Though God is almighty, He is far above us, He is far exalted over all the universe, He's not required to consider or deal with us. In fact, it would seem well beneath Him even to set His gaze upon us. And yet, not only does He look down, not only does He continually stoop low to consider our needs, but he comes alongside us as a loving and caring and concerned father. This is God's heart. Praise your great and your humble God. And nowhere do we see God's humility more evident than when he became a man and dwelt among us. The humility of Christ is, again, unfathomable. We see it all through his life, serving and caring and providing for others' needs. 
One well-known example would be John 13, right? And the washing of the disciples' feet. There's another example, too, in John 21 that sometimes could escape our notice. I want us to turn there, John 21, where we'll see another act of amazing humility demonstrated by our Lord. At this point in time, Jesus had risen from the dead. He was in his glorified body. And for whatever reason, the disciples had decided to go back to fishing at the Sea of Galilee. So Christ comes upon them. They'd been fishing all night, had caught nothing. And as Jesus approaches the shore in the morning, he calls out to them, Hey, what have you caught? You know, nothing. Throw your net on the right side of the boat. They did. And just like in Luke 5, the net was full of fish. And at that moment, they realized, Hey, it's the Lord. Right? Peter jumps out. They make their way, rowing feverishly to get to the, to the beach. We'll pick it up there in verse 9. Of John chapter 21. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed upon it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Well, as they were coming to the shore, what is Jesus doing there? He is cooking a meal. When they arrive on the shore, what does Jesus then do? He invites them to breakfast, a breakfast he has prepared and then begins to serve it to them. Here we have the risen Lord of the universe just raised from the dead, most incredible act in history, and he's serving these guys breakfast. They should have been the ones, right? Serving him breakfast. They should have, in fact, been ones groveling up the beach in worship and adoration of their Savior. What can we do for you? Are you hungry? Can we get you anything? But no, it's Jesus himself doing that. He's the one saying, here, come, eat. I know you're hungry. You've been up all night. Don't let that pass you. This is amazing. Our Savior doing that, the one who deserves our adoration and glory, He's the one. His heart is one of a servant. His heart is one of a servant. This is the heart of God. But the humility of our Lord doesn't stop at, at serving a meal. It doesn't stop at washing dirty feet or caring for physical needs. No, the awe-inspiring humility of God is seen nowhere better or more incredibly than in his own incarnation and death. Turn to Philippians 2. It's a a well-known passage, but again, don't let your familiarity with it deaden or dilute the amazing truths that are revealed here about your great God. In calling us to be humble towards one another, Paul could think of no greater example to draw our attention to than the humility of Christ our Lord. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. We'll read there. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now notice the progression here of our Lord. He lowered himself from heaven to live as a man, born in a stable as a baby, to grow up from a baby to a child to a man with all the human limitations. And not only that, he lowered himself further as a bondservant, as a slave to humanity, born in poverty. And not only that, he lowered himself further by dying an undeserved death. And not only that, he lowered himself further to die shamefully on a cross. And not only that, he was made to bear the sins of the world, to be forsaken by his father. It wasn't enough that he just become a man. He became a man who was despised and forsaken of men. This is our great God who did this. This is our great God. Of this passage, C.S. Lewis eloquently stated, No seed fell so far from a tree into so dark and cold a soil as the Son of God did. Again, remember, this is our high and exalted Lord that the psalmist in Psalm 113 was drawing our attention toward. This is the one who is over all of creation, the one who created everything in a word, a spoken word, who sustains it all by that same word. This is the one whose power is unbounded. His greatness is unsearchable. His might inconceivable. It is this same God who brought himself lower and lower and lower and lower for you. That is amazing. How could we not be staggered by that truth? And as we sing our praise to him, as we declare a verbal praise to him and audibly, how can we not reflect on that and say, praise you, God. He is an amazing God, is he not? Amen. God is great. God is humble. And God loves us. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Did we deserve such consideration? Are we so worthy to have anyone die for us, let alone our holy God? (laughs) Were we so great to have such love displayed on our behalf? The answer is obvious. No. No. It's only because of our great, majestic, and powerful God who willingly and constantly humbles himself to become one of us and then die for us. It is only because of his great mercy, of his great kindness, of his great compassion that he extends to every one of us the opportunity to have eternal life. And what's more amazing than that, and again, an an attribute of his humility, is he not only extends that offer to invite us to be with him, but he says, I will adopt you as my child. God will humble himself to that point to welcome us as his children. This, brothers and sisters, this is the great and humble God that we serve. Praise your great and your humble God. Now, there may be some of you here who do not personally know this God. There may be some of you here that have not realized that he has given himself up for you. This is your opportunity to turn from your sin, from your rejection of him, from not honoring him with all that you are. This is your opportunity to turn And to follow him. This is your opportunity to turn and to cry out for his forgiveness. And he will willingly offer it. If you but confess to him and say, I have sinned. I have rejected you. But you are not worthy of that. 
You created me. You sustained me. You give me life and you gave me opportunity for eternal life. Agree with those things. Turn from your sin and place your trust in our Savior. And He will, at that moment, give you salvation. He will provide with you eternal life. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. But don't take His humility for granted. Because one day the same Jesus will return. And He will return in bringing swift and fierce judgment upon the earth. This same King will show the greatness of His wrath unleashed upon those who have rejected and rebelled against Him. But this same king, when he returns, he will save his friends. Those who have confessed their sin and made a commitment, turn their life to Christ. He will save them who have sought his forgiveness. Turn to him now. He is an incredible God. He is worthy. He is more than worthy. In closing our time together, I I want you just to sit back in your mind's eye. Put yourself in the upper room that night. You watch as the disciples and our Lord, as they sit down ready to take Passover meal, they begin to read Jesus himself reciting Psalm 113, this same psalm. And as he reads, Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? That one who's mouthing those words is a very personification, an example of God's greatness and his humility. And then he leaves after the meal, to go out that very night to Calvary. The greatest act of humility ever done. An act done in love for His Father and in love for His creation, for you and for me. Indeed, who is like our Almighty God? As we pray in a moment, I want you to spend that time silently gazing upon His majesty, gazing upon this psalm and the amazing truths that that we've seen from it regarding our God. We need to be in awe of His humility. We need to be inspired and blown away by His greatness. Does He not deserve that you love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Is He not worthy of your passionate, of your continuous praise from this time forth and forever, at all times and all places? Praise your great and humble God. Let's pray together. God, as we reflect on your greatness, we are staggered by the immensity of your power, the Lord, the vastness of your creation. Lord, just a, it's it's just beyond us. As Job said, Lord, we we have no ability to to get our minds around this, and we are blown away by the fact that that you, being of such greatness and power daily and moment by moment consider our needs you stoop low very low to care for your creation we can but Lord offer you only our praise and our thanks and Lord our very lives it's all we have we thank you Lord Jesus for showing your heart of humility before us even to the point of serving breakfast and washing feet and And so amazingly in your sacrifice on the cross, 
You are worthy, so worthy of our praise. May we give it many times, often, Lord, and with great passion and genuine heartfelt joy. Lord, transform our hearts to be that kind of people, the kind of people that delight you, the kind that, uh, Lord, you desire to be praising you at all times. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege to know you, the privilege to be adopted as your children. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.